Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 17 through 26. Uh, Last night I did a uh, last-minute course correction, and I was going to preach the entire paragraph, and it was just too much. And so I shortened the passage um, a little bit here. I was going to preach through verse 34, and we're going to go through verse 26 and then get that last um, section, Lord willing, next week. Um, But we'll be looking at the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace to us. We thank you for the kindness that you have shown us in Christ and in the gospel. We pray that you might be with us today. As we look at your word, that you might encourage us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is hard to find a generation that is more divided than our current generation. And there is perhaps no time more urgent than the present for us to be unified with one another. We are facing a crisis of disunity inside of the church today, and we are polarized. There is an organization called the Polarization Index that attempts to measure the degree of polarization in America, and the current issues that it reports on as the top issues would be immigration, racial equity, voting integrity, abortion, health care reform, policing policy, gun legislation, COVID-19 vaccines, climate change, and minimum wage. The church in America is no better off. Many pastors that we would have fellowship with just five years ago have taken a sudden and drastic course correction theologically speaking themselves, and many of them are calling into question core doctrines that we assume were a given. Many churches in America have divided straight down the middle during the COVID wars, some closing their doors altogether because a church family could not get along. One interesting observation comes from the authors of the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And I love this book because it is a great example of Paul in Acts 17 at the Areopagus when he says, as even some of your own poets have said. And this book, of course, is not written by Christians or Um, It's written by two non-believers steeped in the secular world, but it's fascinating because it functions in much of the same way. As even some of your own poets have said, this is an issue. I'm going to read to you uh, something that they say in their book. They say this. They're talking about college campuses, by the way. They said, something began changing on many campuses around 2013, And the idea that college students should not be exposed to offensive ideas is now a majority position on campus. Colleges today, in large part, the students believe that the professors are there not to expose them to other ideas and to think rigorously through those ideas, but they believe that their professors exist to protect them from ideas that may be perceived as dangerous to them. One of the reasons that we are so divided is because, culturally speaking, and again, this is coming from secular colleges, we want to be so insulated and protected from ideas that offend us. 
And I would suggest to us that this works only to increase our division because now not only do we disagree on these different issues, but we can't even talk to each other about our disagreements because we disagree about talking to each other about our disagreements. Everywhere we look, there is more and more division. And to be quite frank with you, I don't know how much more division our nation can handle. Something has to give somewhere. But this ought not be the case among us. And it doesn't have to be the case among us. We don't have to be divided. We can all get along, so to speak. The only remedy to disunity with man is unity with God. That's it. Nothing else works. God will not permit anything else to work. Vertical unity, that is to say, my unity with God, leads to horizontal unity, that is to say, my unity with fellow man. The only way we can have unity with our fellow man is through Jesus Christ in the gospel. Now, what does all this have to do with today's message? We are talking about the Lord's Supper, about communion. And here is the significance. There is no place on planet Earth where our unity is more crucial and more on display than at the table. I'm talking about the communion table, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is the height of Christian unity and fellowship. If there is any place that you do not drag in factions and disagreements and disunity, it is at the table. Do not be flippant with the things of the Lord. He is God and you are not. Let's read the passage in front of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, my outline today is uh, pretty simple, pretty elementary. But we have wrong practice and we have right practice. We have what we should not be doing and what we should be doing. And Paul begins here in verses 17 through 22 with a pretty strong rebuke to these Corinthian Christians. He says in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. Now, he begins with a very clear statement, and he says, just so you're clear, I'm disciplining you right now. 
He, he, he gives it rather straightforward to them. And notice especially this little phrase here in this section where he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, you might recall, as we have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, that we said that the book of 1 Corinthians does not have um, perhaps uh, an outline like we would uh, like to have today in the academic world. He's kind of been uh, picking this topic and this topic and this topic. And what we said is that this is showing us that the book of 1 Corinthians is an occasional letter. That is not to say that it was, uh, you know, uh, were to read it occasionally or that it was written occasionally. It was written for occasions, for events, for specific kinds of things that were happening in the church at Corinth. And so Paul was writing this letter to address those specific things, which means that Paul says, I'm going to talk about this now, and now I'm going to talk about this. And now, oh, by the way, we're going to talk about this, and now we're going to talk about this. Um, one of the ways that he signals, and we've seen this several times in this book already, but one of the ways in which Paul signals that he's on a new topic is by this statement, I hear. So he's been responding to reports that he's been getting. Uh, in chapter 1, we saw that Chloe's people, whoever they are, were reporting to Paul some of the things going on. And so Paul is hearing uh, reports and things going on in the church at Corinth, and he is simply saying, I hear this, and I hear this, and I hear this. And this kind of explains why there are somewhat abrupt changes in topics going on in the book of 1 Corinthians. We were in, for example, chapters 8 through 10 for several weeks, talking about issues of conscience. Then he quickly shifted gears to talk about men and women, and now he switches gears again to talk about communion or the Lord's Supper. And he starts the topic by telling them that when they get together at the table, nothing good happens. He says, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. Now, it's kind of like getting together with your family, you know, at Thanksgiving, and I hope that this is not the case for any of you, but you get together with your extended family that you haven't seen all year long, and what should be the most beautiful display of family unity at Thanksgiving sometimes in some families becomes one of the ugliest displays of disunity because no one can get along, and it's supposed to be a special time. It's supposed to be a time set aside to give thanks and to be with one another, and yet this is what happens in so many families across our country. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying this is the height of Christian unity, and you are coming together, and there is disunity here. He tells them that he hears about their divisions, and he says that he believes it, and then he says this statement in verse 19 that really causes us to do a double take. And he says this, there must be factions. There must be factions? You're telling them not to be divided, and now you're telling them that there must be division. The, the, the three words in English, there must be is one word in the Greek. It is the word day, D-E-I, if you wanted to transliterate it. And the word simply means it is necessary. The word also carries the meaning of something that is fitting or something that is proper. Because of the situation and because of the circumstances and because of what's going on, it is fitting. It is proper that we would do this. Or... 
it is necessary, it is essential that this would happen. In a section on church unity, it seems a bit counterproductive then that the Apostle Paul says it is necessary that there are divisions. Paul obviously failed his Church Growth 101 class in this area. You don't tell a church that it's good to be divided. And yet he says it is necessary for these divisions to be here. What is Paul going on here? Well, he's also not trying to fulfill his government-mandated diversity quota either. He's not trying to say, let's get as divided as we can so that we have as many different diverse viewpoints as possible here. This is not what Paul is doing in this chapter. Why then does Paul say it is necessary or there must be factions? Well, he answers this question in the rest of verse 19. He says, it is necessary because it does something specific, and that is it reveals. What does it reveal? It reveals who is genuine in the church and who is fake in the church. There's an important aspect of this, that it does something. Division gives you an opportunity to clearly see who is real and who is fake. And so, for instance, if you're sitting out here and you attend Crossview Church week after week, but you are a false convert, and you are someone who is unregenerate, and you disagree with the doctrine and yet you are quiet, there is no opportunity. We will maybe perhaps never know that you're sitting here as an unregenerate person. There is a sense, and of course we know that God in his sovereignty uses sin, he does not, he's not the author of sin, but he uses it, and he uses division to help reveal those who are true and those who are false. Some people say the statement, doctrine divides. And I would respond to that by saying, what doesn't divide? Is there anything that we have found that doesn't divide us? And of course, that uh, polarization index shows that we are divided on everything. John MacArthur was told one time that doctrine divides, and he responded with, yes, it divides truth from error. Pilot licensing examinations divide, and you and I are glad that they divide. <laughs> you and I are thankful for that. They divide those who are qualified to fly from those who are not qualified to fly. And I am grateful for examinations for pilots when I get into an airplane. Now that kind of division is good. And what Paul is saying here is not that they are to remain fake, their people are to remain false, or the church is to remain divided, but he's simply saying the one value here is that now we know who are the true Christians and who are the false converts. And what is that? Okay, now true Christians, you've got work to do in your own church because of the division that's going on. The goal is not to remain fake, to remain false, there must be an ultimate rejection of division and an embracing of unity. Divisions uh, reveal, but there must be unity after the revealing. We have to do something. We can't leave it like that. We have to pursue unity in the church. The cream rises to the top, so to speak. We find out who's real, who's not. 
And that aspect is good because it does at least give an opportunity for repentance, and it gives an opportunity for returning to the Lord. Now, what Paul is going to do here is he is going to tell us, or tell the Corinthians and us, all the ways in which they are divided, the ways in which they need to repent. We see this in verses 20 through 22, and he simply says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Whatever you're doing, it's not the Lord's Supper. For an eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another goes drunk. He says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you uh, despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? I will not. In other words, what you are doing, Corinthian Christians, is so foreign to the Lord's Supper that you can't call it the Lord's Supper. It's something else entirely. It's, it's not communion. Why? Because everyone goes ahead with his own meal. Some are, hu- are hungry, some are drunk, and there are uh, some commentators that believe this is an example of the church just copying the world, and I think that it is. Consider one commentator says this. This was a common complaint in other dinner parties in the Roman world. In many cases, the seating of the guests and the distribution of the food were orchestrated in such a way as to reflect the social pecking order as perceived or imposed by the host. Ancient writers complained of being insulted by the lower quality or lesser quantity of food served to them in comparison with the more highly esteemed dinner guests. And so this is very likely something that's going on in the Roman world. There is this social order in other contexts, and then the church is simply copying the world and saying, well, we're, we're going to, to do this as well. This is a classic case of the haves versus the have-nots. This is the sin of partiality. The well-off members are gluttons and the poor members starve. What a great picture of Christian unity we have here. And Paul refuses to commend them for this. But as Paul does in his uh, writings, he not only provides the negative, he does provide the positive. Well, this is, if this is not what it's supposed to look like, what is it supposed to look like? And he gives that to us in verses 23 through 26. And Paul says here, um, beginning of verse 23, something that we hear very frequently here at Crossview. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One pastor says that verses 23 through 26 is like a diamond dropped in a muddy road. And it certainly is that. One moment we see the ugliness of division and partiality, and the next moment we see the heights of Christian unity. And every month we observe communion here, and we hear these words, And we ought to remind ourselves not to grow dull of hearing them. We read these verses frequently, and it is easy for us as believers to say, I've heard that so many times before, this is the part where I'm going to check out. And that is not 
the time to check out. We do it so frequently because it is so important. Paul narrates to us then here the last day of Christ on this earth before his crucifixion. He tells the story with the noteworthy detail that this happened through betrayal. Of course, we know Judas is the one who betrayed Christ. Betrayal that was likewise ordained by God because the crucifixion was God's plan. And what we do here every month at Crossview is modeled after what Christ did. We don't observe communion, by the way, as a big meal because of this passage. Communion is not a time for uh, filling our bellies. Communion is a time to reflect and remember what Christ did for us. And so Jesus takes the bread, he gives thanks, and he says this according to the passage, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. He commissions this as something the church is to do, and this is to be an act of remembrance. And then, of course, the command is the same for the drink. And what is interesting to us is that he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, we cannot help but immediately think of Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll look at this passage here. Jesus is using the language of covenant, of promise. He is specifically referring to not the old covenant, but the new covenant. And we note that this new covenant is not something, by the way, that was plan B for God. God did not, uh, was not in the Old Testament, and he simply said, um, man, my plan is failing big time, and I better come up with something else to fix this problem, because all of this whole Old Testament sacrifice thing, man, I messed up on this one, okay? This is not what's happening. We know that because God promised in the Old Testament that this would come. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, and here's our statement, new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all know me, they they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel gives the new covenant, and I won't put it up here, but he says that one of the things that will distinguish the new covenant is he says, I will cause them to walk in my statutes. And Jesus is boldly declaring, here it is, this is the new covenant. And interestingly enough... We see this theme repeated from the Old Testament that the new covenant is inaugurated by blood. Of course, we see this at the cross through the atonement. We also see this with the Old Covenant in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 8. 
And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And of course, we know that Scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And this is an essential part of what Christ has done. Covenant through sacrifice. Covenant through blood. And while there is not a specific interval that is prescribed here for us, uh, and we, again, as I mentioned, practice communion once a month, and probably, if I was thinking, should have practiced communion today because of this text. Um, we are not given a, a specific interval here, but we are told as often as we practice it that we are to do two things. You see that in the, the passage here? We are to do it as remembrance of Christ, and we'll look a little bit more about that in the application, what that means. And then in verse 26, we are to proclaim the Lord's death. So there is a remembrance. There is a looking backwards. There is a, a looking at what Christ has done for me. And then there also is a looking forward. We're looking forward to the second coming. But do you see how it says that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until. So it's a task to busy ourselves with in the here and now. We are to be evangelizing, discipling. There is an evangelistic thrust in the Lord's Supper, in communion, that while I am observing this and while I am remembering, I am thinking that I have been commissioned with a task to preach this gospel message to the whole world. And that is what we've been called to do in the Lord's Supper. Now, let's maybe tie a little bit of uh, some of these loose ends up here and look at the passage kind of as a whole here. One of the disadvantages of uh, kind of cutting off this last section and not preaching the whole passage here is that so much of the application is in next week's text. There, there is a significant amount of, okay, therefore we ought to go and do this in the Lord's Supper. But this text, this portion does have some, and I think it's significant for us to focus on some of the aspects of application that are uh, in this particular portion of the text. We began today with the observation that we are a polarized uh, generation. And that only increases daily. Um, to quote again from, as even some of their own poets have said, the calling of the American mind, they make uh, an interesting observation. They say, we have emphasized a basic principle throughout this book. The more you separate people and point out differences among them, the more divided and less trusting they will become. And I think there is a certain element of truth to that. Our culture today wants to find all of the reasons why we are different from one another, and that has a certain effect of causing us to become more divided. Envy, of course, comes into that. Jealousy and provoking us to argue with one another. 
Now, likewise, in George Orwell's famous book, 1984, he portrays the party as holding their power because they are divided. And he emphasizes the theme that divided people are weak people, that divided people are easily controlled, and that was what he was going for in that particular book. But everywhere we look, in our own culture here in America, and even in the church, evangelicalism, if you could call it that, everywhere we look, we are being pressured into dividing ourselves up, and this only adds to uh, the problem. But we also have to remember that the pull towards division and away from unity is not only an external pull, it is an internal pull as well. In other words, you need to be fixed. You are part of the problem. I am part of the problem. This is not just something that our culture is doing externally. This is something that we wrestle with in our own hearts as well. And I will make um, these applications a little bit more specific in a few moments here. But I want to say that the text today can be applied along two main lines of thought. First, we are to be unified. Um, And second, we are to remember Christ's work of atonement. Now, there is a little bit of a tension that we find here with this call to be unity or to be unified. And what we would acknowledge, as we saw when Paul said that it is necessary that there are divisions, we are not called to forego or relinquish truth in order to foster kind of a faux unity. Right? We, are, we are not called to create a fake unity by getting rid of truth, right? Doctrine divides, yes. It divides truth from error. And so if we are standing on the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, if we are standing on biblical truth and we are finding that there is another church, maybe in our community or wherever, and that church is denying these truths, we are not called to create unity by relinquishing truth. Okay? That is not the call. The call is to create unity by conforming to truth. So that we would call those who are opposed to the gospel, to repent and believe in the gospel and create unity that way rather than manufacturing it with our own equipment and our own tools and our own resources. That will get us nowhere. In fact, that will get us, uh, the world will despise us for that, ironically, um, because we can't make up our mind who we are. And so that's not the call. When we say that we ought to be unified The call is to be more like Christ, not less like Christ, to be unified. The first half of this passage ought to really leave us blushing that we could find ourselves sinning against our fellow man in such a way as this, in the disunity that they were experiencing. The point of the text is that you leave social status and your piles of cash at the door when you come to the table. There's no division here at the table. When you come to the table, you are welcome if you are in Christ. 
rich, poor, famous, obscure, the affluent and the needy, male, female, black, white, American, Mexican, popular, unpopular, articulate, inarticulate. The only thing that bars someone from participation in the table is if you are an unbeliever, or as we'll see next week, Lord willing, you have unrepentant sin as a believer. And then the cure is pretty easy. If you're an unbeliever, become a believer. Repent and believe. And if you are a believer, then you better repent and not drag your sin into this thing. We don't bring division to the table. What this should do is it should make us have short sin accounts as believers here at our local church. If there is an issue between two believers in this church, make it right. And make it right immediately. One pastor says that this is so urgent that uh, he's developed, he didn't tell what it was, but he's developed some sort of a signal between him and his wife, okay? And so if they are out in public, let's say they're invited over to someone's house and they're sitting around the dinner table and all of a sudden the husband sins against the wife or the wife sins against the husband, you guys, you know you can do that even when you're like at someone else's house and there's subtle ways, right? You know the things that you do to annoy one another and you do that somewhere in public and no one else knows that you've just created rift. You guys are all smiling, so you know what I'm talking You've done it before, okay? Everyone, all of the people at that dinner table are just going on with their business, and now you have two people who are opposed to one another because you just did something that frustrates the other person. The other person knows it, and now there's division here. Okay, so this one pastor believes that reconciliation is so urgent that him and his wife have, has developed some sort of a signal, that means, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And I forgive you. And they could do that right there at the table with everything going on, and no one else knows what's going on, but they know that they have repented and forgiven one another. Now, the application is not to make a signal, although you could. But it is to recognize that it is urgent. Reconciliation is urgent. And it is not something that you let fester, and and bitterness is not something that you let uh, well up inside of you. Um, You are to reconcile immediately. And that is to happen in your families. That is to happen in our church here. Do not allow sin to fester between church members here at Crossview Church or anywhere. But don't dare come to the table if you have failed to attempt to get something right with somebody. Jesus says this. Now, this is not specifically at the Lord's Supper, more worship in general, but it applies in both contexts. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's serious. You don't come to worship 
with disunity between you and someone else. In fact, it is so crucial that I give you permission to, to, to leave, to go out there if you need to. Oh, we're having communion. Oh, wait a second. Or, oh, I'm coming. Oh, I just rec- I remembered this. You can grab someone else in this and say, can I talk to you for a minute and go out here? This is what Jesus is saying. Don't come to worship dragging disunity here because you're living a hypocritical life when you're doing that. The second half of this passage gives us instructions on properly observing communion, and the application can be found in the two imperative verbs in the entire passage. There's two imperative verbs in this whole section, and it's the same word repeated twice. It's the word do, both in the imperative, both commands. And he says, the first one is, do this in remembrance of me, and the second one is, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, the act of remembering is more than an intellectual exercise. It is a call for us to act on the implications of that thing. So when we say, remember what Christ did, it is not, okay, that was nice. All right, moving on now. It is a remembrance that has implications for how I live my life. Therefore, I need to go and live differently than I was living when I came in here today. I need to do this differently or that differently. It is a call for us to remember what Christ did, remember his second coming, and position myself between those two realities in absolute conformity to the will of God in all things. How can I obey God now? All right, let's go to four specific points of application. I'm kind of landing the plane early today, um, but you guys probably won't complain about that too much. Um, Four points of application. Number one, as much as you are able, pursue unity with all people. Seek reconciliation prior to worship and communion. Uh, Now, specifically, and I'll add this um, distinction here, I specifically use the phrase, as much as you are able. Um, Unity requires, reconciliation is going to require two parties to reconcile fully, right? Um, And this is why we read in uh, Romans, where Paul says, um, "As, as much as it is possible to live at peace with all men. You can go to a person and seek reconciliation, and they can refuse that. Anyone experienced that before? Okay. If you have sought reconciliation, then you have done what God has called you to do, and you can worship with a clear conscience. Now, I might suggest to you that it's not a one-and-done deal, that you continue to try to seek reconciliation from those that you might be estranged from in some way. But you will not be at peace with everyone on planet Earth. Okay, There are going to be people that are going to be at odds with you as much as it is possible. And the, one of the significant aspects of this application is to seek reconciliation prior to worship and communion. Um, 
by the way, that's not when you wait till Saturday night. You still should be doing it immediately. But think through, is there something I need to reconcile? Application number two is forsake partiality and view fellow believers as equals before Christ. This is actually an interesting aspect of the text here, an interesting aspect of um, this passage in light of what we saw last week, right? Because last week we saw clearly that there are distinctions between men and women. Our culture does not believe this, but the passage explicitly gave a hierarchy. It said it is God, Christ, man, and woman. It talks about submission and marriage and all these kinds of things. And now we see a unity here. And none of these aspects abolish the other aspect. We all stand before God as co-heirs. And at the same time, there is a distinction, a hierarchy that God has created in our very nature itself that is a difference between us. And so... What we are saying is, when we forsake partiality, we are not um, adopting the spirit of the age and saying men can be women and women can be men, but we are saying that our status before God is the same. We both can come to the table together and have unity with one another. That's application number two. Application number three, At communion, remember, this is our word, remember, remember what Christ has done in the atonement and respond in grateful worship. What has Christ done for us? How does that affect us? And then the last one is at communion, remember the second coming and seek to make every moment count for eternity. In other words, there is an implication to uh, what Christ has done And I need to go out and obey in those ways. And we've seen some of them through unity and forsaking disunity, uh, evangelism and discipleship. Those kinds of things come out of communion because it's what Christ has called us to do. We will, Lord willing, take a look at the next and last section of the Lord's Supper next week um, and talk about examining ourselves as God has called us to do. Uh, when we come to the Lord's Supper. But let's close in a word of prayer today. Thank you, God, for today and your faithfulness to us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gospel. Help us to remember what Christ has done for us at communion and help us to remember that we are to proclaim that gospel message to others. If there are some here who do not know Christ, I pray that you might help them to repent and believe in the gospel. And I pray that you would foster increased unity uh, in our church. Uh, We pray that you'd foster increased unity in the church in America and that people would see that Christ is the answer and is the solution to all the problems that we face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.